This is John Ortberg, and we're working through wisdom on renewal in Dallas Willard's book, Renovation of the Heart. I mentioned a while ago that in my worst moments, sometimes I feel like I'm just a dull little man putting on a show, and that actually is kind of a dark thought to me, but uh, a friend sent me this t-shirt so that I could always remember that. Not a particularly good friend, but a friend. So if you have been wondering when we will start producing spiritual formation loungewear, apparently it has begun. And I wanted you all to know and see. Uh, part of the difficulty, of course, when we seek to follow Jesus, when we pursue spiritual life, is we will come to see the things in ourselves that we least like, that most need to change. And you might feel, man, I don't want to feel bad about myself. What do I do if I'm having low self-esteem? So I want to start there today as we move into the next chapter, a very challenging chapter in this book, chapter three. And what I want to say to you about self-esteem is if you're wrestling with low self-esteem, the good news is you don't have to worry about it at all. Very interesting. There is uh, uh, been a lot of research on the subject of self-esteem, and I want to read for you from Roy Baumeister, he along with Mark Leary, a number of other people have done very extensive research on that topic. Here's what Baumeister writes. For three decades, I and many other psychologists viewed self-esteem as our profession's holy grail. We thought self-esteem would soothe most individual and societal woes. In part, not only success, health, happiness, prosperity to people who had it, but also stronger marriages, higher employment, greater educational attainment in, in communities that supported it. In fact, as you might remember, one state actually commissioned a state task force to promote self-esteem. Want to guess which state that was? Wasn't Illinois, wasn't South Dakota. That's California. Uh, Baumeister and Leary and others were eventually commissioned by the American Psychological Association to analyze decades of research into all of the work that had been put into elevating levels of self-esteem. This is what he, this is the executive summary. Not only did self-esteem fail to accomplish what we'd hoped, it can backfire and contribute to the very problems it was once thought to thwart. So example, in many cases, people that had high self-esteem were actually just narcissists. And you might think, well, a narcissist is somebody who has a secret wound and underneath the surface, they actually have low self-esteem. It's not what the data showed. They're just narcissists. And then other people who might have been rated low in self-esteem were actually just modest, humble people. Baumeister goes on, many Americans believe we suffer an epidemic of low self-esteem. Were this idea not taken so seriously, it would be laughable. Try telling people in other countries that one of Americans' biggest problems is low self-esteem. They're not buying it. There is ample data, he said, to show that Americans tend to overrate and over our value, overvalue ourselves. To put it plainly, the average American thinks he is above average. So what should we do? 
Well, Baumeister says, actually, if you want to help people have better relationships or more educational attainment or be protected from becoming violent or bullies or giving into substance abuse, don't foster self-esteem, promote self-control. Self-control is a far more powerful way to a flourishing life. And then this, and I thought this is quite fascinating. My message is not new, he says. It can be found in the Judeo-Christian tradition although he himself is not a person of faith. And you might remember, the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, and then the final one that kind of binds them together, that enables them to be lived out is self-control. And that's not something that I generate on my own. It is a fruit of the Spirit. Now, this brings us to the third chapter in Dallas's book and a step in the process of spiritual renewal, the renewal of the heart for you and me. But this is a very daunting message, very daunting chapter. We'll be in it for a little while. It's titled Radical Evil in the Ruined Soul. It starts with Psalm 14 verses 2 and 3. The Lord looks down from heaven on humankind to see if there are any who are wise, who seek after God. They have all gone astray. They are all alike perverse. There is not one who does good. No, not one. That is not written by California State Task Force for Self-Esteem. Dallas writes, we must see the soul and the person in its ruined condition with its malformed and dysfunctional mind, feelings, body, and social relations, before we can understand that it must be delivered and reformed and how that can be done. And one of the great obstacles in our day is we have a very difficult time seeing that. Part of the power of AA, if you know it, is that first step to recognize that I am powerless before my greatest problems and my life has become unmanageable. Not in a theoretical, abstract way, in a life or death, heaven or hell way. Because that opens me up to receiving help beyond myself. And then this very penetrating thought from Dallas, this is page 46, evil now and non-category. In our day, in our culture, Sin, as a condition of the human self, is not available as a principle of explanation for those who are supposed to know why life goes as it does and to guide others. Sin is no longer available as a principle of explanation. The word has become distorted. It is thought to be not scientific. Dallas goes on, why do half of Americans fail? Or why do we have massive problems with substance addiction and the moral failures of public leaders? Those who are supposed to know are lost in speculation about causes, while the real sources of our failures lie in choice and the factors at work in it. Choice is where sin dwells. And in our day, uh, understanding the human problem in terms of words like sin sounds quaint or Victorian. The word is either not used at all or it's used in certain religious communities that are so narrow or exclusive or mechanical or legalistic that it's just simply not a helpful word. And yet we cannot really understand our situation apart from it. In our day, it is often thought that the basic categories of personal health and flourishing or problems are in 
the therapeutic community, what's called the Diagnostic Statistical Manual, which is now on its fifth iteration, trying to use it consistently as a huge problem. There is another set of categories called the seven deadly sins that for over a thousand years guided the human race in self-assessment and diagnosis. You will not find them in the DSM-3. Has someone shown them not to be valid, not to be scientific? Dallas goes on to write on page 49, the initial move towards Christ-likeness cannot be towards self-esteem because of confusion about what self-esteem means and because realistically, I'm not okay and you're not okay. We're all in serious trouble. That must be our starting point. I am powerless over my great problems. My life has become unmanageable. I cannot help myself. Self-esteem in such a situation will only breed self-deception and frustration as is now increasingly recognized by the way. And by the way, Dallas wrote this three years before Beimeister and his team did that massive analysis of self-esteem in 2005. Dallas just had a way of keeping up with stuff or being ahead of it. For the realities of our soul will still be what they are. See, self-esteem is just how I feel about myself. It's not necessarily tethered to reality. It could be based on narcissism. The issue is the condition of myself, not how I feel about myself. The realities of our soul will still be what they are and will still have the consequences for evil that they naturally do, regardless of what we or others may say to pump ourselves up and really to conceal and deny who we are, dull little man putting on a show. A high opinion of ourselves will only make these consequences more difficult to deal with. Denial, usually in some form of rationalization, is the primary device that humans use to deal with their own wrongness. It was the first thing out of the mouths of Adam and Eve after they sinned, and it continues up to the latest edition of the newspaper or whatever screen you happen to be looking at. The prophetic witness from God must throw itself against the massive weight of group and individual denial, often institutionalized and subtly built into our customary ways of speaking and interacting. And this will be a journey. This will be difficult for us to come to grips with it. Now, what do we do with this today, practically speaking? Well, what I would not encourage you to do is to try to manufacture through willpower a deep emotional sense of regret or manufactured anguish or um, artificial emotional repentance. That just does not work. Unfortunately, the word sin doesn't hit us like the word alcoholic hits an alcoholic in our day. Where I would suggest that you and I start today is with a very, very ancient prayer. Primarily, it comes from a parable Jesus told in Luke chapter 18, verse 13, of somebody who realized the state, the condition of the lostness of his soul and prayed. Uh, and, and this version of the Jesus prayer goes, Lord Jesus Christ, have mercy on me, a sinner. Lord Jesus Christ, have mercy on me, a sinner. And I will, I invite you to make that the prayer today not trying to create a real fervent emotion around it, just quite calmly, Lord Jesus Christ. And sometimes 
one of those words, Lord or Jesus or Christ or mercy or me or sinner might be emphasized. This is sometimes called the prayer of the heart. We're looking at the renovation of the heart and across the centuries, people have used it in a very deep way. So make that your prayer today. Lord Jesus Christ, have mercy on me, a sinner. And I will meet you in the place of truth. Guard your heart. Thanks for listening. You can join the conversation and more by visiting becomenew.me slash subscribe.